We are friends, you and I. Friends. Friends. <laughs> Good. Good. Before you came, I was all alone. It is bad to be alone. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. Friend. Good. <laughs> Episode 28, ladies and gentlemen, of The Fear of God. We are uh, here bringing you a conversation every single week about the intersection of Christianity and the horror genre. And we're doing so rather uh, rather in a silly manner, I have to say, with these universal monsters. Speak for yourself. This, I'm, I'm all professionalism here, buddy. Right. As if every single time you open an episode, you don't make up some adventure that I'm on that you may that I may not return from. <laughs> For those of you who may not know who we are, my name is Reed Lackey. And my name is Nathan Rouse. And as we said, we're bringing you a conversation about the horror genre and the intersection therein with the Christian faith. And we are engaged in a series right now, a monthly series about the classic, iconic Universal Monster Movies. Just a couple of weeks ago, actually, we brought you the second installment of that when we looked at 1931's Frankenstein. Hey, Reed, guess, guess what I'm, guess what I'm enjoying while we record? Wine. Uh. In the spirit, in the spirit of Dracula. I am drinking wine. And in the words of Dr. Pretorius, it's my only weakness. <laughs> you like that? That was like really that? great. That was quite meta, and I enjoyed all of that. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, it really isn't a weakness, everyone. Don't be concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. So wow. Not but if any of you are out there, I just there, didn't want them to be... <laughs> Because you said, you said, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you are, get help. But um, you just said it's very meta. It made a, made the suggestion that maybe I, I do this too much. Like it is an actual weakness. I think, I think you're over. Are you trying to, this. is there, are you staging an intervention? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Anyway. Um, so we have a new element to every episode of The Fear of God. We're debuting it here. We are going to start sort of introducing a rating system of sorts. What this is going to be is a way for you, the listener, before we even begin the conversation, to kind of know whether or not you, uh, if you've decided, I don't know if how many of you make sure you watch these movies every single time before you see our conversation, or maybe you hear our conversation. We're just, we're pretty, we're pretty enthralling, I think. It's like it's like the Scooby Gang, just two of us though. You're Daphne. <laughs> I'm just letting you know you're Daphne. Um, but so so what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of uh, categorize these films and rate them in our own sort of particular way. We're going to rate them in three basic categories, and this will be kind of fun. It'll be fun for us. Hopefully, it'll be fun for you guys. So the film that we are talking about today is the sequel to 1931's masterpiece Frankenstein. A film that is arguably even greater than its original counterpart. We are talking about 1935's, also James Whale directed, Bride of Frankenstein. So how we're going to rate these is we're going to rate them in three basic categories. We're going to rate them on their style, which is essentially just how well they're made, how accessible they are, whatever you want to take style to mean. Uh, we're going to rate them on that general sort of quality rating. Then we're going to rate them on their fear factor, their general scariness. And then we're also going to rate them on their thematic substance. So style, scariness, and substance. And I see uh, what you did there. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, a little it's the Triple S initiative. The lackey alliter alliteration at work. Yep, a little lackey alliteration. <laughs> so, uh, 
So, um, so let's let's just go ahead and start with with style. I'm gonna I'm gonna rate this uh, Bride of Frankenstein on a scale of one to five. I give it a four point five for general quality and style. So we're doing like points, like we're doing like ha- yeah, you can do points. Point. You can do half. Like you can do quarters? quarter one if you want to make me really mad. Wow, no, yeah. that's that's a sure. bit extreme. I would say on the I'm going to interpret style as like how well I enjoyed the movie. And so, um, for me, style, I'd give it a solid four. I wasn't prepared solid for the four. halves. So, oh, you know, gotcha. in my paradigm, the four is strong. All you right. Know, the four is, str- the four is strong with this one. <laughs> okay. Well, perfect. So, uh, on the scare factor, my rating, um, is down pretty, pretty low because this film unfortunately suffers from the delusion of time. Uh, the the dissolving of its fear factor. So I gave it a 2.5 out of 5 on the fear factor, the scariness. I'm going to stick with um, scariness, uh, kind of a 2, yeah. Okay, 2. Okay, so, but now on substance, as we're going to get into in the episode, I give this a solid 5. You sure? I do. You sure it's not a 5.5? You're going to surprise me? Well, that's above our rating (laughs) scale, you jerk. Um, yeah, I would give this a five. I'd give it a big, fat, high Frankenstein five. So, that means, Nathan, why don't you tell them what what the official Fear of God ranking is for Bride of Frankenstein. Well... Out of ten. Okay, well, you know, you have these ranking systems, you know, Siskel and Ebert had the thumbs, um, Rotten Tomatoes has... What, what do they, what do they have? They have tomatoes. Um, I know. I was just kidding. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> wow. I'm not that dense. Um, <laughs> like, hey, what do rotten tomatoes have? I don't What's know. their scale? Um, it's bananas. So, we were reading that. Reading that, we're going back and forth uh, on what exactly we should use as our scale. Do you use, like, movie titles? Like, do you rank it with, like, carry the rage as the bottom of the barrel, but carry the De Palma as the top of it, you know, that then that's rather esoteric. That's rather inaccessible. So we stumbled on something that we both mutually love and find fun. Um, to anyone unfamiliar, I'd encourage you to look around Halloween from 2016 at, uh, Saturday night live and specifically the Tom Hanks character, David, don't forget the middle initial S pumpkins. So moving forward on the fear of God, we are going to be ranking movies by their David S. Pumpkins metric. So, The Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> gets today, Reed, seven David S. Pumpkins. To which we'd say, any questions? <laughs> I'm David Pumpkins. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. So, yes, seven Listeners David Listeners who have never heard of David S. Pumpkins think we have lost our mind. The show has officially jumped well, over the pumpkin. Well, if it took them that long to come to that conclusion, I'm just impressed with our, <laughs> with our ability to hide that. <laughs> sure. Um, all right. So, Brad of Frankenstein, seven out of ten David S. Pumpkins. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. The rating system will be available on our Letterboxd page. We have a list on our on our official Fear of God Letterboxd page um, that uh, we've linked to on Facebook. I'll link to it again after this episode that you can go to and see uh, the episodes that we've covered thus far. Uh, because Letterboxd is a movie-only page, it won't have things like Witches or our 2016 episode, but it will be able to track the films that we cover, and each of those will have our rating systems, both Nathan's, mine, and our official Fear of God, David S. Pumpkins rating. So, um, all of those will be there. Uh, we're not, we obviously can't retroactive our our older episodes, but you can look on the Letterboxd page to see exactly how we've ranked these previous films. Um, but that having been said, I mean, Bride of Frankenstein, 7 out of 10, that's not bad. That's a solid recommendation. So, um, let's, it's a solid uh, movie. Yeah, it is a solid movie. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. So, I want to give just a, a moment's history about Bride of Frankenstein, um, just a little bit of Universal Monster trivia. The Universal Studios wanted to do a sequel to Frankenstein uh, almost as soon as the original Frankenstein received some early test screenings because it was already screening very high. It was a very popular film, and they knew they were going to want to capitalize on a screener, uh, on a sequel to it. And James Whale was actually the problem. The director of the original one said that he was pretty done with the story. He said he had just milked it for everything. He didn't have any more ideas to tell in that story, so he didn't want to do it. 
So a few years went by, and James Whale also directed a film that we'll cover later in the year, uh, The Invisible Man, and that was, again, a big success for Universal. So Universal pushed again for him to do a sequel to Frankenstein. They started bouncing around ideas for a script, and they went through something like nine or ten drafts, completely different writers, completely different drafts. A couple of things got approved by the Hayes Code, but nothing really landed with, with James Whale. Until uh, a screenwriter finally had the idea to go back to the original novel of the source material, and it's a subplot in the novel that the creature uh, imposes upon Dr. Frankenstein to actually make him a mate. And so uh, when they finally glommed onto that idea, then the story began to take shape, and James Whale agreed finally to to do the film uh, but he didn't think that the sequel was going to do any good he didn't he thought that the that the idea had basically been done and that it was pretty dead so here's what's ironic about it is that he went into making this film thinking that he was just going to make the most outrageous thing he could possibly make and just have a lot of fun with it throwing all of his ideas on the screen and on the page and he accidentally in the process made a bona fide masterpiece <laughs> i mean this is considered by many to be not only a great Universal mo movie, but it is considered by many to be the best of all of the Universal monster movies. Most of the critical assessment ranks this at number one, uh, even above many other original franchise entries, which I think is ironic. But you said you liked it. You said that you, you considered it a, a solid film. What's your general assessment, your your general take on it? Likes, dislikes, etc. Sure. You know, I, I think probably of Dracula, Frankenstein, and Bride of, this is probably my favorite of the three. In many ways, just because I, I really didn't know the, I didn't know the story I was about to watch. And that's always right. kind of a refreshing experience. And you can sit down and watch Frankenstein and sort of plot out, okay, this is where the story is going, even if you're not, haven't literally watched the movie. Whereas with this, you know, there's some actual you know, kind of plot twists and actual surprises to the story. I really enjoyed the framing device of the, the creators talking beforehand. Yeah. Although it is funny, both of those, the actors, the, the men in that scene, specifically, I think it's the Byron one. At a certain point, I was like, okay, dude, we get it. You can roll your R's really well. Like, just <laughs> like, we get it. Like, man, you are milking that. For all it's worth. No kidding. Um, so that was kind of funny. But uh, regardless, great framing device. I think, in a way, this movie actually makes you a lot more empathetic towards the Frankenstein monster. Like, oh, absolutely. In, in, in a way, that the first film, I feel like maybe they try to do, but just, I, I don't know, don't, don't really land on it for me. But, um, you know, you really feel a lot of the, the gravity of what it means to be this creature now, like, out in the world. Like, how, how do you function? How do you live? do you live, you know, um, right, right. What is it? It's kind of, it's kind of like the question in reanimator. Did this guy really think through not having a head? Like we are now thinking through the ramifications of what it means to be an undead Frankenstein monster roaming the hills, you know, and it's a pretty mm -hmm. fascinating story yeah. in, the, in, in doing so. Yeah, I agree. I also love the, uh, uh, as you mentioned, I love the framing device of it. And I think it was interesting. We talked last week about the, Sort of the, the acknowledging the conceit of the, a person stepping forward and sort of setting you up to experience this story. Um, they could have easily just followed that same pattern and had somebody else step forward again, but I liked that they went a slightly different route with it. And there's even an interesting implication behind Elsa Lancaster being the actress playing Mary Shelley, and she also is the bride. Uh, as is revealed at the end. And I think James Whale, I read somewhere that he was he was making an intentional comment by that connection of casting because the the creator uh, is inventing this story and he's making a kind of a comment, some some subtextual commentary on the dark side of the imagination, how, you know, all of our monsters are sort of living within us and that that in a sense they are us, as it were. Um, I love that line. I mean, it's so it's so rich. We could spend probably 15, 20 minutes discussing it alone. But uh, the the toast that Pretorius gives where he says to a new world of gods and monsters, that's just a that's just a ripe line. Uh, it's it's I think this script in general is incredibly solid. I think it's just a really lived in script. It's a very full bodied. Every moment has 
substance to it. Um, you could you could pause almost every single individual frame and have some sort of discussion about what you're seeing or what you're experiencing. I will say though, so her her name is Una O'Connor. You will know her as what I call the shrieking lady. That um, <laughs> she she just wanders through her scenes. Just shrieking uproariously. I actually have a note that uh, says all she does is scream the first 10 minutes. I was like, that gum. <laughs> it's so true. She's so over Well, the and then top. she trips me out. Um, You're probably going somewhere important with this. But then she trips me out. There's a scene where she's in the frame and she hears a scream. And she just goes, Mrs. Newman. Like, <laughs> really? You know how to identify everyone's <laughs> scream in the immediate vicinity? Like, like you just sort of know, like this is Mrs. Newman. Like, how do you? Anyway, it was really funny to me. Well, I don't know. I would identify her scream. I think she's got a pretty oh, sure. distinctive yeah, she's, scream. She, yeah, that's all she does. <laughs> that's all she does. Um, but it's funny because she's so over the top. But then again, like that, it felt like everybody's kind of playing to the back of the stage, like or the back of the house. Everybody is playing you know, very broad in this particular film. I think all of the Universal Monster films, we commented at Dracula. I think we might have even said something with the original Frankenstein, but they all have a very sort of stagey quality to them. And this one, everybody is acting so broad. It was interesting. I don't know how much of that is a is an intentional choice on James Whale's part, because as we mentioned, he he was throwing all of his ideas kind of he used this word. He said he wanted to make this film a hoot <laughs> because he didn't think that it was going to be successful. He didn't think it was going to do very well. So he just wanted to have a bunch of fun with it. And uh, I think it's really interesting that he wound up probably just by virtue of just going through and having fun with it, wound up making uh, just that much greater of a movie uh, because of it. Well, and um, I mean, it is a very bombastic you know, the like Frankenstein, the first entry is just kind of the art house version, you know, and then the second yeah. movie, they got the bigger budgets. Let's go crazy. You know, <laughs> it's like the um, Michael Bay version of Frankenstein for 1935. I love in this movie how Dr. Frankenstein at the end of Frankenstein, the first one is just thrown from the top of a windmill. And then in the second movie, he's yeah. like walking around 20 minutes later. He's like, I'm good, y'all. Yeah, I'm good. I just thought that was funny. Well, you can presume that he's uh, his science his science superpowers have some means of giving. So let him- me ask you this: This is maybe I don't think this is related to theme or anything, but it's really as much as I like this movie. You talk about throwing the baby and the bathwater at the screen here, like the tiny people that Pretorius brings out. That's weird. Like, oh yeah, that yeah. doesn't. That was the one moment actually. I would say like I was like that's what. That was real. It's pretty bizarre. Well, it's pretty bizarre. It feels like the one time in the movie they're like flaunting what was passing for visual effects at the time. It's like, look, mm, look, right, look what right. we can do. It, it probably was. And it's just a basic composite shot, you know, like, I mean, they just, they just filmed the little people and then composited it. Well, they aren't actual image. little people. You, you, you just are. <laughs> You're really, <laughs> listeners have no way of registering my facial expressions <laughs> when when Nathan's making these comments. Oh man! No, no, so, they're really there. They're really that tiny. It, oh my god! I'm, I'm gonna make another Sunday Night Live reference. Do you remember Nicolas Cage as Tiny Elvis? Yes, that's I what do. it reminded me of. Was that's one of the few Saturday Night Live ones that I remember. That's tiny, that tiny is really E. Funny. Uh huh. Thank. Oh my gosh! Thank, that's thank you very much. I actually don't, you know, it's funny because I actually, I like that Pretorius has made those creatures because of something that I'll get into when we get into theme, but I, I don't, that scene doesn't fit. No, me. I, I, like, I totally just, agree. I mean, like, it really feels like it's part of a different movie. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some listeners would disagree with me and certainly some historians probably disagree with me, but, but yeah, I, I that, that scene just sort of feels like it's part of a total other kind of movie, um, uh, than this one. And like I said, I like, Based on something that I'll say when we get to theme, I like that it's there, but it did feel very strange. It just it just feels very sort of bizarre. And like, the, oh, the king made it out of this out of his jar again. <laughs> you know, evidently that's a problem. And he's eating a really tiny mutton chop. Yeah, like where did where do you where get did the- that come from? Why are you not showing us the shrunken lambs, the shrunken sheep? You're just showing the shrunken king eating the shrunken sheep's mutton chop. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we are made to presume that Pretorius evidently has this this massive 
you know, collection of <laughs> just the <laughs> tiny world. <laughs> I really, man, I wish they'd made that movie. That's, that's, that's something. Pretorius's tiny world. It's just. Pretorius's tiny he just world. Like, it's like dog fighting. He just sta- stages these, these wrestling matches with the tiny, tiny people. <laughs> wrestling matches my money's on the king uh, you know i don't know i think the ballerina is going to take it this oh time. lord this is what comes of making david s pumpkins part of our of our fear of god episode i just threw it out is, you went is, for it we just uh we just we just lose our faculties um i don't really i mean i'm i'm that 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 summarizes most of the the likes dislikes that i was going to talk about i i don't really have like last time I don't really have any scary moments because, I mean, the, the 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 fear is diffused by the passage of time. It's just maybe this was, you know, frightening or thrilling to, to audiences at the time. But to audiences of our sensibilities, seeing some of the other things that we've seen, it's just not really not really terribly scary. Um, although I will say that the image when the bride is finally revealed, that's a very mystifying and, and very dramatic, very sort of compelling image and and moment i don't know that i would call it scary but that's a that's a captivating moment like the reveal of the first monster in the first film um that's a very sort of compelling moment visually uh it's it's interesting and uh and a little unnerving unsettling because of her sort of skitterish uh, movements that she has this very almost almost somewhat robotic movements um so like i said i didn't really have any scary moments but but i did find that moment to be of particular note in a compelling yeah, sense. Yeah, I wouldn't say scary in the traditional sense, but I do feel like in a very valuable way, <clears throat> there's a sense of foreboding. Like you, you do actually, I mean, I don't know if this was whales, just like throw everything at the screen sort of mentality that yielded it, but it still works. Having Frankenstein develop language, right, definitely. Right. Hu- Which Karloff was against. Karloff really? did not want the yeah he did not want the monster to speak at all um, fought it tooth and nail lost obviously but yeah. well so you you give you give him language well suddenly he becomes much more humanized and so when right. he gets taken you know when 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 the reverie of the violinist sequence breaks which we'll get to I'm sure in theme but you know you feel terrible you're like oh man you know like this this guy just wants a break um, the blind man's helping him out. Uh, there's something really lovely about that. Well, then the two random hunters wander in and disrupt the show. Well, then, you know, I mean, it's kind of comedic a little bit how he breaks out of those chains, that chains chair. But, but even then when they're hauling him in, I don't know. It was the first, like I said, not scary, but definitely foreboding. Definitely like, man, this guy just, you know, when, once you introduce language communication, you now feel bad. You're like, this this right, is a this right. is a conscious sentient creature and i don't want to watch him be tortured yeah oh yeah he's automatically empathetic sure. much more empathetic than he even was in the first one and i i considered him empathetic in the first film but he's somebody that you that you really you're right you don't want to see him suffer to to this degree so it's interesting um i i'm i'm ready to sort of dive into theme and I have, I have one that I'm almost reluctant to give because it's a bit out there. But I think I can make we've, a case we've, for it. We've we've all come to expect no less, Riri. <laughs> so I, I didn't read this anywhere. Uh, I didn't I didn't hear about this anywhere. This is just something that I gleaned from this most recent rewatch of the film, and it was the first time that I sort of glommed onto this. Um, again, probably because I'm trying to think of it in terms of how we're going to discuss this uh, sort of from a faith perspective. So it's important to note that James Whale was not a religious man. In fact, in many ways, was very antagonistic towards religion. He was an openly gay man living in Hollywood, which in the 1930s was uh, meant he was very controversial and ostracized by many. So he he was somebody who any any religious elements in this film, and that's one thing that I'll say. Uh, the the image of Jesus is multiple times seen in this film. In uh, you know the the Frankenstein monster himself is kind of in a uh, a partial cruciform pose after that scene that you were talking about when they when they car- cart him away. So so it's almost like the images of Christ haunt this movie. But it's important to note, for fairness' sake, that Whale was not a religious man. So it's interesting 
to see those things and to wonder what intention was behind introducing those images into this into this uh, sort of story. So here's what I was here's what I was going with when I first watched this movie. Tyler Smith over at More Than One Lesson talks about this all the time when he's developing uh, sort of themes. He says, I'll pick up on an idea and at first I'll say, oh, that's that's not what this is. That's not what this movie is. But then as the movie progresses, more and more evidence for that idea will present itself. So it's like, wait a minute, maybe there is something here that's playing with with this sort of idea. That's the experience that I had with what I'm about to introduce to you here. I see this film possibly as an elaborate and very inventive Garden of Eden allegory. (laughs) Um, Because here's what I was looking at. I was looking at the creature as a kind of a surrogate for Adam. Um, He's a created being uh, launched and thrust into the world. He demands a mate. Of course, in the Garden of Eden story, Adam did not demand a mate, but he did He did not have a, a helper, um, so God created a, a wife, a bride for him. And then I kept seeing Pretorius as a very sort of serpentine figure, both in his intentions, how he behaves, and in some ways in his appearance. And it was interesting to me as I was watching this film play out that I kept seeing more and more evidence for this sort of Garden of Eden reading on what was taking place. And at first I was like, ah, that's that's a stretch. That's a little bit of a stretch. But then I was like, wait a minute, I don't know if it's such a stretch. And here's here's part of my sort of my case for it is that uh, one of his one of Pretorius's first lines when he goes to visit Dr. Frankenstein is that he was booted out of the university for knowing too much. Um, so that's what he says is that he was ousted from the university for knowing too much. And it immediately made me think of like Satan's fall from heaven, sure. you know, and then his entire modus operandi with Dr. Frankenstein is to to coax him in right, to, right. to tempt him to restart his work um, for his own sort of nefarious gains. And this is where I really sort of solidified it in, in my own mind is with that scene where uh, his his little creations are in the in their little jars because he makes a very distinct difference he he distinguishes himself from dr frankenstein's work by saying dr frankenstein patched together the dead and then reanimated them but he grew them like seeds and so it immediately sort of flashed to me this image of like a like a garden almost as if pretorius in that moment is kind of a surrogate for mother nature that uh, he's like, I, I just did them a very sort of natural way and that these these lives, these these creatures, these small beings that he grew them, he grew them out of uh, out of seedlings. And I just found that immensely fascinating. And then I began to think about the fact that, of course, all three of them, you know, the creature, the bride and Pretorius at the end of the film, uh, they're all in a sense sort of destroyed or cast out. So before I I land on what I kind of wanted to say about all of that, uh, do you have any sort of initial responses or thoughts or read you're crazy, you've lost your mind, that's too out there? I think that's not a wholly unfair reading. I mean, I think that the more you talked about it, like like I'd be hesitant to just sort of blanket apply it, but I do think, you know, there's some elements of that there. It's it's hard it's hard to fully buy in. Like, okay, that is the reading that's that's sort of meant to be taken away from this just because there are right right there are some disruptive elements to to a strict interpretation in that direction but i do think it's a an interesting take that i i certainly hadn't considered but even just the elemental uh narrative points of uh a created being you know um right by a sort of god figure being victor Right, Victor Henry. He's Henry in the films. He's Victor in the in the original novel. Yeah. Uh, Henry in the film. So you got your God figure Henry creating a being, and then a, a, a creating a companion being. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it. I would be hesitant to say that's ridiculous, but you know, um, I think I think the pieces are there to play with. Yeah, sure. And like the pieces there to play with, like like little jar people. You know, I mean, you just take them wow. out and shake them a little bit and put them back in their jars. So, so you abuse your jar people. You, you evidently <laughs> horrendously mistreat them. Um, this is why I can't be trusted with jar people. Last time, it just ended badly. <laughs> it just ended badly. Um, I, well, and here's what it, here's what I thought about when I when I grabbed hold of that reading of the film. 
um, I remembered, you know, a little bit of meta knowledge that James Whale is very antagonistic towards religion uh, for some reasons that would probably be understandable given um, his particular personal framework in that context of time. And here's what I found interesting. If we look at the film in that light, that the film is kind of this uh, metaphor for the Garden of Eden, Henry Frankenstein is kind of the God character right. in that scenario. And if that's the case, I think the film might be saying something because look at Henry Frankenstein through the course of the film. He's very reactionary. He's not proactive about anything. He's pulled and coerced into everything. And he's very, he's terribly irresponsible. He hasn't taken care of his creature. His creature is out there in the wild. He hasn't. Uh, given the time and care and attention, even with cr the creation of the bride, to make sure that it's ready to receive the creature and that it's ready to to live uh, with the creature in sort of harmony and wholeness. And, you know, Pretorius is kind of running the show. He's kind of the the, the puppet master to all of this. And it made me wonder about some of the language that I hear from people who are rather antagonistic towards religious thought and how they tend to have you ever seen now i didn't i didn't love this this film um or this play but i think part of it was a my lack of capacity to really relate to some of the source material but have you ever seen angels in america or have you read angels um in america? i have seen it and yeah yeah i I've, i haven't seen i haven't seen the film version i did see a stage version yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, so there's that. Uh, and then the other thing that it made me think of is the more recent, uh, preacher TV series, mm -hmm. both of which have a theme where a character or characters are, shall we say, calling God out sure. for, uh, his lack of responsibility or for his lack of care, where they're sort of indicting him in their language for basically making them and making them in a way that, most people see as flawed and say that God sees as flawed. And it's, it's interesting to me. I, I don't want us to necessarily get into some whole, um, dramatic conversation about, you know, the implications of subsets of, of different groups of people that have been persecuted over time by religious thinkers and non-religious thinkers. But it was interesting to me in this reading of the film, because I'd never seen the film that way, where I looked at it this way. And I, and when I, again, sort of grabbed hold of this Garden of Eden metaphor and began to see Henry Frankenstein as a very pulled and coerced and very, uh, you know, rather foolish little God figure, it made me wonder if there wasn't some sort of subtext that was indicting this idea of we've been made, but we haven't been cared for. We've been, uh, we've been fashioned and created. And, and it all culminated for me in the very iconic, one of the most uh, remembered cinematic lines uh, in history, you know, not top 10, but probably in a top 50, the monster's final line to the rest of the room. He's looking around at, at the bride and at Pretorius, and he says, we belong dead. And it, it, when I was watching the film with this interpretation and then culminating in that line, the thought that I had and that I wrote down simply is, that is the language of the curse. That's that's the lie that the curse of sin puts upon us that we we see ourselves as we talked about in the exorcist that we see ourselves as unlovely as unlovable and we despair and it culminates in this attitude of we we belong dead that is again the the language of a broken and severed relationship between creation and creator between god and man uh and it it just floored me when I thought about that. Mm. It just, it, it, I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say it bowled me over in this watching of the film when I was already sort of lobbing on to all of these other things and then it culminated in that monster's line, which again, I've seen this film, you know, half a dozen times or so. Um, so I knew that was coming, but then when he said it and it just struck me so hard that there's a, a, a possibly a wide amount of people who have no real deep belief that God loves them and that he cares for them and perhaps in their own way either try to grab hold of as as so many materialist thinkers do try to just grab hold of life as precious because it is temporary and uh you know grab hold of that as valuable or go the other route and and slip into a kind of a self-imposed nihilism you know we just we belong dead we just deserve death 
I know that that was a dramatic shift into some really heavy subjects, but it's uh, it's something that I really took away from this watching of the film that now I don't I don't know how well I'll be able to see the film in a light other than this, <laughs> you know, sort of moving forward now that I've sort of uh, landed here, if that makes sense. That's that's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, I think there's, you know, the more the more you talked the more you know kind of where you're going like the garden of eden felt like a very strict interpretation so i was having a hard time fitting all the square pegs and all the round holes but you know if you if you view it just more as a totemic god satan adam eve type figures and loosen the restraints a little bit i I can see that interpretation working as if we're going to go there as an indictment on on a, on a creative person's part of sort of organized religion. But, you know, I do think, I think it's possible that that's an interpretation on the part of whale. Um, I think our call, not that you wouldn't be interested in this too, but like, I think even in the most nihilistic of perspectives, um, I'll call back to bone tomahawk. It's on us to make sure these things have value. And mm. it's hard for me to escape the sort of, surprising beauty of those middle 10 minutes of the violinist sequence. I mean, you could make, you could make the case that if this is an indictment of religion on Wales part, that, well, that scene ends in fire, you know? Um, right. That's, that's a reasonable argument to which I would say it does, but that doesn't negate that it still happens. Um, right. And I was, I was arrested by that. Like that really, I, I feel like there's so much, so much truth and sort of power and, and launch pad for, for conversations of things of, of faithfulness in those 10 minutes. I mean, not the least of which is music and the, the capacity for the, of, you know, forget whether it's music period, but just creation, you know, let, let's right, juxtapose right. those two things. You're talking hyper meta sort of God figure creating a corrupt being. Okay. Well, juxtapose that with this corrupted individual who is blind. And that's what I mean by corrupting. You know, it's, it's a non quote unquote whole individual creating beauty Mm. and that beauty entrancing the broken. I mean, that, that alone is rife for conversation. So you have that starting point. I mean, that's powerful on its own. You know, you could take the blind man out of it and just have the the capacity of music to entrance Frankenstein as a powerful talking point. But that right. add to that the fact that it's a blind man uh, who's creating. So he's creating music that is soothing this what passes for the soul of this monster. So right. you know the the right. capacity of creation to be a balm to us. You know. Marilyn Robinson, who wrote Gilead and Home and a couple other books, um, Gilead specifically, but I got to hear her speak a number of years ago. And that's a wonderful, wonderful book that any listener should, should pay attention to. But, and, and she said, I, I just wrote this quote down. I'll never forget it. She says, the beauty of the world is the signature of God. Mm. And, you know, I think, I think there's something so powerful about that. Like it is so, don't get me wrong. It's easy to pay attention to the fact that it all ends in flames. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it's, it's easy to say, yes, but look what, look where it all ends. That like, like I get it. And, and there's a way in which that's undeniable in this film, maybe ultimately in this world we're working in right now. But there's almost a way in which faithful living requires blindness. I'm stumbling into that one. Faithful living requires blindness. Faithful living requires blindness to the corruption and deformity and brokenness of those around us. Right. 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 And like, I don't even know that you'd you'd probably be able to cite the reference for me. What I wrote down was man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Mm. Yeah. It's first Samuel. Yeah. And there's something so interesting that happens in that scene when the, those with sight walk in and freak out. Yes. Cause all they yeah. see is, is the outward appearance. They mm-hmm. haven't done the work that this blind man who sees nothing has done. And that's, that's, I mean, my gosh, the man, the, the, the character literally prays over Frankenstein. Yeah. And considers Frankenstein an answer right. to his right. prayer. 
And I, th- yeah. I think, I think, you know, and hear me, I, I, perhaps it sounds like I'm dismissing your interpretation. I hope that's not how you receive that. I just think oh, that, ele- that sequence was so powerful to me to almost outshine anything else in the movie, which is already a really strong movie. I liked a lot about it. And I think there's some really good thematic stuff to pull out. Like, you know, you, you made me think earlier about the actress playing Mary Shelley and the bride, you know, as a commentary on cr- creativity, like, the thing you create is going to be the thing that destroys you too, you know, so you can play with that, have fun with that. But I think that sequence was so powerful to me, you know, th- this, this conversation of friendship and, Oh yes. And, yes. you know, I'm making a lot of external references here, but are you familiar with John O'Donohue? John O'Donohue, is that his name? He created the large communities, um, Frenchman. Oh, uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about now, but his name is escaping me too. Something with a V. The, uh, Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier. There we go. Yeah, we got yeah, it. Yeah. And, and I, I'm going somewhere poignant with this. I was listening to a podcast of his, an interview with him on NPR years ago. And depending on your, your position on the spectrum of faith, you might be offended by this. I don't know, but I found it beautiful and lovely. He was telling the story of a niece, I believe, who was dying of like HIV AIDS or something. And she was, she was an atheist. She was very concerned, but she was an activist. She had been very diligent and worked tirelessly as an activist helping other people. And, uh, Vanier is asked by her about what might happen when she passes away. Mm. And he's, he, he reassures her and he calms her. And she says, he says, I think I'm, I might mess this part up, but he basically sort of blesses her and gives her sort of peace as she ends, is ending her life. And he, and the reason he gives her this sort of assurance of faith is he says, because you have been a friend to Jesus mm. by giving, by giving of yourself to these people. And I think there's something so powerful in, and uh, you know, it sounds like I'm like drilling down deep on the scene, but it's, it's riddled with meaning, right? Yeah. And there's something so powerful about the broken befriending the broken, like friendship. And what does that mean? And what does it mean for us to, to, you know, not turning away the stranger, not turning away the foreigner, the person in our midst, embracing one who, I mean, before, he meets the violinist. He doesn't have speech. I mean, it is, it right. is literally, the violinist kind of gives it, right. To him. It is yeah. literally just a person, just a, a warm body, which is funny in the yeah. sense of it being a cadaver sort of, but you know, like a, a friend, I don't know. I could, I could go on for a while just riffing on that, but I yeah. feel like it's such a powerful scene. Yeah. What I had written down about that scene, cause that was actually the second element that I was possibly going to talk about was, um, I said that, that, the hermit is blind yet sees him, yet sees Frankenstein almost more clearly than anybody else does mm-hmm. because, and this is exactly what you were saying that, you know, because he's not able to see the, the deformity, because he's not able to see the monstrousness of him, he is able to engage with, with the creature in a very loving and caring way. And the creature reciprocates that mm-hmm. and, and a friendship develops and, Man, oh man, whatever, whatever potential heretical, uh, notions James Whale may have infused. You want to talk about me pausing the movie the moment I see the blind and the monstrous sitting at a table breaking bread and drinking wine together. Sure. Yeah. It's beautiful. You want to talk about like that, that also floored me, you know, just, just, just this idea that all are welcome at the table. Yep. Everybody. And isn't it hilarious? Isn't it hilarious? Like, you know, that image, like that's the kingdom. Like, yes. And it's far be it for us as 30 something white men and, and take it and run with all sort of demo, all sort of ages. But you know, the, the world being run by old white men, like perilous are you who sees that and says, no, thank you. My goodness. Right. You know. Right. Well, and and that's the thing. And this this actually, I don't think necessarily, and I don't even think you were necessarily implying this. I don't think that the Garden of Eden interpretation is that asynchronous to to that that moment in there, because what does what does he say? What does the creature say? Alone 
bad, yeah, yeah. friend, good, sure, sure. you know, and what is, what is said when the, the Eve is created for Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. Right. Oh yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think that, it doesn't, that, the violinist quote that. I mean, I think he yeah, says the, yeah. it's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. Absolutely. Right. And you know, th- this, that's part of what makes the, fin- the final moments with the bride heartbreaking. That's like the final moments with the bride are the primary reason this is a horror film is because it's, it's utterly devastating when he sees this other creature and as he emerges out of the shadows and begins to draw towards her, what does he say? Holding out his hands. He's asking a question, but friend, friend, right, is this, is right. this a friend? And that's what makes it so devastating when she sees him and freaks out and falls apart. And, and he even says, he's, you know, she hates me. She hates me. And, and it just, it breaks my heart looking at this. And that, of course, bleeds into the we belong deadline. And it's just so devastating to, to think about all of the people who just need some sense of communion. They need some sense of, belonging somewhere and some place where they are not going to feel monstrous, right. where they're not going to feel, uh, and, and take that for how you will. Each and every listener who's hearing this probably has some personal battle that they've faced in which they have felt less than, if you want to use that language, or perhaps in some cases worse. Uh, how many of us in grade school got called freaks for whatever reason? There's this idea that you have to be a certain norm to be culturally accepted, socially accepted, and those people are the ones who are are looking for some sort of sense of belonging. And here's what breaks my heart. What breaks my heart is that anymore, and this is not a this is not a 2017 problem. I mean, this is a centuries old problem. This is, this is a time of Christ's walk on earth problem is that oftentimes they are not going to find that belonging in the arms of those who profess to represent God. Right. They are not going to. And, and that's why I'm, I'm careful to point out that that was a problem that Christ was facing. That, that who were the ones always bringing up these outcasts in front of him that he was welcoming and saving and redeeming? They were the religious elite. And I think that that is a, is, is a trap, a snare that any religious thinker could potentially fall into to think that like, well, now I have the ear of God. I have the knowledge of the scriptures. I have this at hand. So instead of being an intercessor for the broken and the lost and the wounded and the monstrous, uh, not, I'm not calling these other people monstrous. You, you know that this is a, con- hopefully listeners will know that this is the context of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Um, that instead of being an advocate and an intercessor for those people to, to help bring them back into relationship with God, we exacerbate the loneliness and the isolation. And I, I, I put something on, on Twitter and Facebook not that long ago. Uh, well, not that long ago as of this recording. It's probably been a while now. But I said, and I, and I won't apologize for this statement. I get teased sometimes for apologizing a lot for what I say. I won't apologize for this one. I deeply believe that someday the great shepherd is going to return and that in his arms he's going to be carrying every single one that the 99 have been convincing themselves that he doesn't care about. Right. We are not interested at large in the same things that our Lord is interested in. And that is in seeking and saving that which has been lost. And he's interested in the blind and the violinist. He's, he's interested in the creature, the, the, the Frankenstein creation. He's interested in that. And he's interested in redeeming them. And he's interested in anybody who would feel, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm out here. I am unloved by God. God hates me because his people keep telling me that at every turn. Let there be at least two voices. Uh, in whatever capacity is that said that God is love. Now, I'm not diluting the scriptures that, that call out sin and the, the toxicity of sin in our lives. That's a very, uh, frightening reality. But the ultimate reality is that God is love. For God so loved the world that what was his response to sin was to send his son to redeem it, 
back to him. That is the, that is the ultimate expression of God's feeling about each and every person out there who's, who's wrestling with whether or not he cares for them or whether or not they have a place that they belong or whether or not they have room at the table. Right. Um, and, and that's something that becomes vitally important to me. Uh, as, as a possible way to sort of wind down, I'll introduce the scripture that I wanted to say in here. We've said it few times in this episode, and it's a, a motif of the film that the monster uses the word friend, alone, bad, friend, good. And this verse stuck out to me from one of Job's laments um, in Job chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 21. It's one of his uh, more hopeful assertions. But uh, again, thinking about this film and this context and this conversation, uh, it almost floored me. He says, even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. And all I would say as a moment of commentary to that is if there are those of you who feel like God does not love you, if there are those of you who feel monstrously cast out, I would tell you that you have at this moment an advocate and an intercessor pleading with the heart of the Father on your behalf, and we call that person Jesus, that he is as a friend to you. He was called, even in his earthly walk, he was called a friend of sinners. And I think that we've lost sight of the significance of that Christ-likeness. And I think that we too frequently get caught up in things that, by my assessment and understanding, he does not care about nearly as much as he cares about seeking and saving that which has been lost. Sure. End of sermon from well, Reed Well, and I think that, like, you know, you made a point about not wanting to play down sin, and, and in some ways I would say, in spe- if we were in speech class, I'd say, I'd say stop apologizing for your statement you're trying to make because you're undercutting yourself. Right, right. Because I think <clears throat> a sort of mantra I've, I've had in front of me for a couple of years now is that I think though we should never uh, not, quote-unquote, take sin seriously, as some might accuse some others of. I think it is a problem when we take the sin of others more seriously than the goodness of Jesus. Like, mm. mm-hmm. you know, what, what keeps us fractured as individuals and as communities should never be more serious ever, ever. Lord, strike me down if I'm wrong, because I believe it should never, ever be more paramount than focusing to a fault on the goodness of Jesus who welcomes mm-hmm. all who says the monster and the blind will, you know, eat at the table together. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. Like mm-hmm. that is, that's it. You know, if you want a, a, a doctrine of sin, you can have it. If you right. want a kingdom that transcends and is forever, I'll take that. <laughs> Well, the quote is, and it's not verbatim, but he said that the 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 adulterers and the whores are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before the religious elite. That quote, by the way, was Jesus. That's not an interpretive understanding. Jesus himself said they will enter the kingdom of heaven before you do, and uh, largely because there's a recognition. um, He he just had a habit. He just had an intense habit of really going after the people who needed him. He said, I haven't come to call the righteous for repentance. I've come to call the sinners. You know, he just had an intense habit of going after the people. And that was the thing is that he would pursue, what would he pursue with them? Would he pursue a system? Would he pursue a religious framework? No. No. He would pursue a relationship. Friendship. He would pursue sitting with them coming and dining with them. And and lest we lest we be unclear, this was not just for the 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 dregs and the lowly. He also uh, and I almost used this as the scripture for this film that um he also ate at the house of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a a tax collector. He was not he was not at all part of of that subset of sort of the the liars and the the adulterers and the prostitutes and the 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 sort of other set that Jesus was was hanging out with he was on the complete other opposite side of the spectrum he was the 1% you know like he was he was the 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 upper echelon of the wealthy and the greedy and and 
the fact is, if you're lost, whether you're lost on this side or that side, Jesus is deeply concerned with getting you back in relationship with the Father. That's right. Jesus' utmost right. concern. Wherever you are lost in whatever side of the spectrum you're lost in, he's deeply concerned about you getting back into right relationship with the Father. Um, and I think we, we cannot, as faithful followers, we cannot lose sight of that being the utmost mission. And to your point earlier, I think it comes down to what do you believe is stronger? The power sure. of sin in your life or the capacity for grace? Right. What do you believe is right. stronger? I believe, and I think you would agree with me, I have always expressed that I believe grace is more powerful than sin. And, of course, like Paul said, does that mean that we sin all the more so that grace can abound the more? That's not at all what we're saying. But don't forget that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Sure. And I sure. do believe that that grace is more powerful than the hold that sin has on our lives. And I think that's where I... Uh, make a choice, a conscious choice to sit, and uh, and I think you do as well. Well, it's you know, it's like Jesus said: if you're lost, you can look, and and you will find me. Man, you bring that up time after time, <laughs> after time after time. Yay! Hey, <laughs> as a as a possible and probably should be final note, you know, there's a way in which you could interpret the final line of this movie as nihilistic, and there's a way in which we as people of faith who believe goodness will and always can overcome the worst Frankenstein, the broken monster says we belong dead. And I think there's a way in which you could say, maybe you do, but you don't have to be. And I think that's sort of the power of the goodness of Jesus that says you might belong a certain way. You might have been destined for grave for the grave. You might have been, mm -hmm. you might have been the adulterer who, uh, did all these terrible things. You might be the, the murderer on death row. You might be those things. You might belong dead, but you don't have to be. Come on, get yeah. in the boat. That's right. On that note. Um, well, I think that's a, a great note to sort of button everything up on. And, uh, this has been, an extreme of an episode, an extremely silly at top and a extremely heavy at the back end, but uh, we hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, and as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. So we'd like you to continue that conversation with us in a variety of ways. If you haven't seen this film, um, we've surprisingly, although we've given away some major beats, there's there's a lot in it, and yeah. it's, it's worth yeah. your seeing, even if you even if we've spoiled the major beats for you. Um, in fact, we give it seven out of ten. David S. Pumpkins here at the Fear of God. Um, Any so questions? <laughs> so to continue that conversation with us, you can do so in a variety of ways. As we always say, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? As always. At the fear of God. You can also uh, follow us on Facebook. You can like our page there and uh, post uh, comments or questions to us there. You can email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? At the Nathan Rouse. You could also go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post and several of the others that we've left. Um, check out our written reviews. And speaking of reviews, we're once again going to ask if you listen to us through iTunes, please take the time to leave us a review there. It's the easiest and fastest way to um, boost visibility on our show. We very, very much thank you for listening. Nathan, thank you so much, as always, for, for having this conversation with me. Of course. And... Uh, Next week, since this is part of our Universal Monsters series, we are going to be companioning this. You know, probably everybody's heard of Bride of Frankenstein, even if they've seen it. So I, in my infinite wisdom, decided to pair it with a film that probably nobody has ever heard of, and uh, likely even fewer have seen. But we are going to be examining, uh, as a companion to The Bride of Frankenstein, a film from 2002, the directorial debut from horror director Lucky McKee, it is the 2002 film starring Angela Bettis called May. So if you've never seen that film, it's interesting. Uh, it's, it's different. It's a little weird, but I wonder, uh, I wonder what month it came out that year. Probably October. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah. So as a companion to Bride of Frankenstein, look up 2002's film May and, uh, we will see you for a discussion about that film next week. Thanks again, Nathan. Later.
he also ate at the house of Zacchaeus, which and all he was, of the people who and let's try this right into Frankenstein was a wee little man. <laughs> <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that's how you derail a deeply religious conversation. No, no, it's how you just it's how you just embellish it and make it fun. There Keep you going. Go. Keep going. No, but sincerely, like the, you know, but come on, that was a good, that was a good tie-in. That was a good. That tie-in. was a that was a pretty good yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but.